Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, first things first, uh, I want to introduce myself for, I know most of you, but many of you who don't know me. My name is Cody. I am the Director of Music and Media at First Baptist Alcoa. Uh, I'm also a student in Patristics and Early Christian Studies at the University of Aberdeen, which means I am a huge nerd. Um, I know. And so because of that, Ash decided that it was a great idea uh, to let me preach on two things that I really love, the Gospel of John and the writings of a church father as part of his All Saints series. Um, I really thought that this was going to be like an ongoing thing that you had already been doing. Uh, and unfortunately for me, it is not. He just hung me out to dry and made me the only one. So if this is just like a really weird Sunday for you for whatever reason, um, I will bear all the blame for it. Um, the other thing is I, I, I feel like I owe, uh, just church an apology. Um, I was in Oklahoma earlier this week with a group called the Center for Baptist Renewal. Um, and they work with churches to, to try to like retrieve theology from church history for churches today. Um, and just like worshiping, thinking about my week spent with other pastors who are doing similar things to what you're doing, which looks uncommon in a place like Blount County, Tennessee. Um, I probably didn't express enough gratitude and thankfulness, uh, for the sweetness of the season that I spent here. Um, it's, it's a special thing going on and there's great churches across the country working to do that. And I am thankful that you guys are um, part of trying to do those things, having things like a structured service and liturgy, um, doing communion in a way that is thoughtful and not just an afterthought. Um, so all that's to just say, sorry, I didn't, uh, express more gratitude whenever I was alongside you all the time. That said, um, I'll stop rambling now. Um, if you'll pray with me, we will uh, jump into John 9, um, but we're going to read John 9 in light of a particular church father um, with respect to this All Saints Day uh, series. So pray with me and then we'll jump in. God, you are good and you are kind to us. Uh, I thank you for sending your son to take on our likeness, and to bear our burdens, that he entered into our world to become sin so that we might become your righteousness. Uh, I pray that as we consider the words of scripture, as they have been handed down to us, that you would turn our affections toward you, that you would reveal your truth to us, and that you would show us how even in the simplest of miracles, the making of mud and the healing of blindness, that you reflect your graciousness and your power at the same time. Uh, let us not be given over to temptation, but deliver us from evil and all the distractions that ensnare us. I pray that our time together tonight is fruitful and honoring to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Uh, before we jump into John 9, I think it would be easier to give a little background Sorry, I thought I was about to knock this microphone over. Um, I think it would be easier to give a little background on Irenaeus of Lyon, whose reading of John 9 serves as the inspiration for the message tonight. Um, sometime in the first half of the second century, Irenaeus was born, 
And we can really only trust about three major biographical details about him. First, he was personally acquainted with Polycarp, who was a bishop in Smyrna, and he's traditionally regarded as a disciple of John the Apostle. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Polycarp's name because his, the story of his martyrdom reached far and wide throughout the course of Christian history. And so a lot of people, if they've been exposed to early church martyrs, Polycarp's probably the first one that they're exposed to. Second, we know at some point he was sent to deliver a letter to the Bishop of Rome, which sounds really unimportant, but it at least clues us in that he did local church ministry. Uh, we don't know how formal the church structure and what leadership looked like in the local church, but we know that Irenaeus wasn't primarily doing philosophy or apologetics like some of the other early Christians would have been doing in his time. Instead, he was committed to preserving the preaching and teaching of the church. And then third, we know that he served as a peacemaker during an early controversy concerning whether or not churches in Asia Minor should be celebrating Passover. Um, it was something that Christians were starting to adopt to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And the details are kind of murky about what exactly the controversy was. But we know that he was called on as an authority, so he had some kind of reputation surrounding him in the time. Beyond this, nearly all that we know about him is drawn from two of his surviving writings, uh, the only two that survive. The first is a very long and tedious book uh, with a very long and tedious title, The Refutation and Overthrow of the Knowledge Falsely So-Called. Uh, it's more commonly known as Against the Heresies, and it consists of five books. Uh, the first two primarily lay out some Gnostic and Valentinian doctrines. These are uh, heretical groups he was trying to write against. And then the latter three try to refute and overthrow those doctrines. In fact, up until 1945, um, whenever there was a, a set of codices that were found in Egypt by some random farmer, like hidden under a cliff, uh, Irenaeus was basically our only source to know that Gnosticism was a thing in the early church. So if you hear something in, in my sermon today as we reflect on his reading of John 9, uh, do not begin with books one or two with against heresies if you try to go read him because you will hate it and you will never want to read anything that I talk about ever again. And he spends like a super long time dwelling on the Gnostics, um, like far too long. Uh, the second work is much shorter, easier to read. I brought a little copy to show you how short it is. It's actually only like half of this book. Um, it's titled The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. And in this, he lays out a rule of faith or a canon of truth from the apostles' teaching. It's basically a summary of what right Christian belief is. Um, you can get this version from St. Vladimir Seminary Press, super cheap, not terribly hard to read. Um, I can highly recommend the translation, mostly because my doctoral supervisor is the one who translated it, so I have to say that I really like his translation. Um, above all else... His legacy is mostly defined uh, by his defense against early heretics and his use of that rule of faith. And when I was rereading Irenaeus some time ago, I found myself particularly interested in a section of Against Heresies in Book 5, where he talks about the healing of the man born blind from John 9. So I did what any sensible person would do whenever they read something that they think is cool. I wrote two conference papers about it. And as I've studied John 9 these past few months, uh, I've learned that it's actually a super captivating story. That on the surface, it shows Jesus performing a supernatural miracle, 
But as we dig deeper and look at what the Spirit's meaning might be in preserving this text in the Gospel of John, we see it's actually a really zoomed-in version of the much bigger story that we are all participating in. God's working in the world. The story of God creating so that one day he could redeem. So, while I'm acknowledging up front that this is a sermon in a church, it's not one of my conference papers about Irenaeus, you're lucky, trust me. Um, my aim this evening is to help us have the eyes for John 9 that Irenaeus did. To read it in light of some of the ways that he was thinking. Um, to put it another way, I want us to reclaim some of the ways that he was interpreting this passage and see if it can help give us clearer vision for how to read the scriptures. And that pun is completely intended. Uh, so I went back and forth on how to break up this passage because you really need the full chapter to get the narrative. Um, Ash asked me if I was going to read the full chapter and I'm not going to subject you to that. Um, there's like 53 verses or something. So uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to trust that you can either read it on your own time. I'm going to zoom in in some different sections and look at how these all fit together. This isn't how I would typically preach a text. Usually I like to go through section by section, see the full context. Um, but there's really three themes that I think we can draw out of this as a big picture. Uh, the three themes are this. Like a good Baptist, I have alliterated them for you so that you can remember them. Uh, the first is the intent of the story. Second is the instrument of the healing. And then the third is the impenitence of the Pharisees. That one I really had to do some stretching. It really just means they weren't repenting. But I had to keep the eye thing going, you know. So we will see that while there is a, a literal and plain sense of the story, uh, <clears throat> both of them are supernatural and miraculous. Spiritual sense of the story reveals that the real meaning of the blind man's healing is something much bigger than what we might think. Additionally, we will see the importance of how Jesus heals the blind. In fact, Irenaeus has some very interesting things to say about that, and we will get to that. And then we will see that even though this healing episode took place centuries ago, it is an ever-present reminder of our own spiritual blindness as human beings to the God who creates and saves us. So let's jump in, look at the intent of the story. Look at the first five verses with me. As he was passing by, this is John 9, if you haven't picked up on that, sorry. Uh, As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Interestingly enough, John frames this story in a way that actually gives us the intent of the passage nearly right off the bat. Prior to this, in John 8, Jesus had departed a dicey situation at the temple, and he remained hidden. Uh, The Jews had prepared to stone him. Uh, because they thought he was blasphemous for declaring to have seen Abraham and to associate his identity with the God of Israel by saying that before Abraham was, I am. And so they were going to stone him. He slips away. And we have no reason to think that Jesus has yet left Jerusalem. 
uh, I wish I would have known you guys were preaching through like the feasts and festivals because this was probably during the Festival of Tabernacles, or at the very least, it was prior to the Festival of Dedication, uh, likely sometime around this time of year, uh, whenever this takes place. In addition, uh, verse 14 tells us that this day was a Sabbath. And so to put it simply, Jesus was not only committing blasphemy, but he was also doing it on a sacred day, a Sabbath during a festival week. Having left the temple, Jesus passes a man born blind. It was common in ancient times, as you might expect, to understand physical maladies as punishment or divine retribution. So the disciples understandably assumed that his blindness must have been the result of somebody's sin. And having seen his wisdom throughout his ministry so far, they asked Jesus whose sin it was. Jesus gives the answer we've been looking for in verse 3, the intent of the story. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. The intent of the story is to display God's works through the healing of a man who has been blind since birth. Simple enough, right? The problem is Jesus' words, as simple as they may seem, aren't entirely clear. Particularly, there's ambiguity about the word works. It unlocks a whole host of other questions. What does it mean whenever he says we must do the works of God? Are these works that are done in a godly manner, like things that are in line with the will of God? Or are these works that are done by God and belonging to him alone? Even more, Jesus says that we must do the works of him who sent me. Are these works that Jesus is going to do in his earthly ministry? And are they things that you and I can do now? Or were they only applied to that context? There's whole there's a whole host of questions opened up by Jesus' puzzling response. People have various interpretations of this, but my own reading of the text is that it's a little bit of both of the two main answers. Though there are specific works appointed for Jesus to accomplish in his time on the earth, we are participating in them as we participate in Christ. D.A. Carson actually points out that when Jesus switches from the plural to the singular in his answer, saying, we must do the works of him who sent me, he's not actually showing how we are supposed to be doing the works alongside him. He's actually showing how he is drawing a distinction between what we are sent to do and what he was sent to do. Yes, he's calling us to participate, but more or less, Jesus is using the words work, the word works as something to the effect of the sum total of God's working in the world. And I think he's doing it from two different angles, intentionally vague. God manifests his character in sending his son, and there are actions that we should do in obedience after we see the light of Christ. For Irenaeus, this story had a much more specific intention. He said that the healing takes place not without purpose, but so that Jesus might show forth the hand of God, that which in the beginning had molded man. For Irenaeus, the intent of the story is to show that Jesus is the one and same God who created humanity in the beginning, choosing to reveal this not just by saying so, but actually by wielding our world. Jesus' healing episode is supposed to be a picture of Jesus' divine identity as the creator. Now, this all brings up an important concept from church history that is central to Irenaeus' thought, so I thought it would be worth highlighting. It's this idea of economy. 
In the ancient world, it did not mean a jobs report or inflation rates. It was more akin to stewardship or ordering. And it was typically used in respect to someone's household. Um, so how, how do you run your household? How do you organize your household? That is, that is the sense usually evoked by the word economy in ancient times. It's the same word that Paul uses whenever he tells the Ephesians that the gospel was revealed to him so that he could tell them about God's administration of the mysteries before Christ. And it's the same word found in verse Timothy where Paul warns Timothy that he should avoid false doctrines because they don't promote God's plan. They don't promote God's economy. The phrase economy of God, then, is shorthand to reference what we have been talking about. This sum total of God's outward acts, those things that reveal his character. We could say it this way, and this is a general rule of thumb that you can think about as you read through the Gospels. We know God by the things that he does. And Jesus' miracles on earth are some of the clearest examples of this. Now, I dig into all this because I think Jesus' words in John 9 are telling us the intent of this story is to communicate something about the economy of God. If God's works are supposed to be displayed in this healing episode, like Jesus says, then it must mean that it's teaching us something about how God orders and works in his household, the created world. In fact, this tends to be the reason for most of Jesus' public miracles. Um, scholars actually call this portion of John the book of signs because there's several signs throughout that are establishing Jesus' identity as the one who was sent by God. Reflecting on this, Irenaeus says that Christ teaches men by the evidence of their senses to give glory to God. And I think this should be our posture when we read these stories. We don't just look at this as a supernatural snapshot that we see and put into a mental photo book of Jesus' lifetime. Instead, we should dig deeper and see how God is using normal human means to accomplish divine and supernatural ends. This kind of reading has been called all kinds of things throughout church history, allegory, typology, spiritual interpretation. They're all closely related, and they all mostly mean the same thing. That these historical realities happened, but God was intentionally using them to reveal specific spiritual truths. So what I want to show tonight is how Jesus' healing of the blind man in John 9 is actually a kind of post-figural reading. It wasn't prefiguring something that would happen later. He was actually calling back to something that happened earlier, how the original creation of humankind took place. So thinking about that as our intent to reveal the economy of God in creating the world, let's look now at the actual healing episode with our post-figural lenses on. Very exciting stuff, huh? Read with me in verses 6 to 12. After he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva and spread spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He's the one. Others were saying, No, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. 
So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. The actual healing, it's relatively straightforward. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells him to wash. And after washing, the blind man can suddenly see. And he's healed to the disbelief of the locals. Which, in their defense, none of you would believe it either, right? In verse 14, John makes a point to say that the day Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was on the Sabbath. It's clear that this detail is included to show us how it was an offense to the religious elite and their understanding of what was or was not permissible to do on the Sabbath. German scholar Rudolf Boltmann suggests that the Jewish communities of the time may or may not have already been prohibiting the use of saliva in medicine and also the kneading of dough or clay on the Sabbath. And if this were true, which I don't, I don't know if there's a way we could prove it, but if this were to be true, uh, that would mean that Jesus was not merely offending the religious community, but he was actually committing an offense against God's holy day, violating his law by kneading the saliva into mud on the Sabbath. John Calvin, writing on this passage, hilariously says that Jesus commences the operation of restoring sight to the blind man in a way which appears to be highly absurd. For by anointing his eyes with clay, he in some respects doubles the blindness. And as funny as it may seem, in Calvin's eyes, the use of mud is obviously a central point for John. It's mentioned in three separate conversations in this chapter. Tells us that it might be a point of emphasis for him. John is regularly trying to call to mind the fact that Christ was healing the blind man by using mud. There's a few fascinating features about Irenaeus' reading of the story, but perhaps the most unique is that he begins a tradition that argues that the blind man was actually born not with deficient vision, but without eyes. He says in Against Heresies 5, for that, that which the architect, the word, let fall aside in the womb, he supplied outwardly, that the works of God may be displayed in him. John Chrysostom later picks up this idea a few centuries after him. Not only did he fashion eyes, not only did he open them, but he also endowed them with power to see. And this is a proof that he breathed life into them. And so he bestowed both bestowed the power to see by giving the eyes life and also gave the organ of sight completely equipped with arteries and nerves and blood and all the other things which our body is composed. One later commentator goes on to say that the blind man had an eyeless face. For Irenaeus and Chrysostom and Ephraim, who I didn't quote, Jesus actually formed eyes from the mud. It's at the very least a fascinating presumption. Uh, it doesn't gain much traction outside of a very specific tradition. And I'm not going to offer a value judgment on it because I, I think it's at least a little bit speculative. However, it is interesting. And it's at least uh, something that I do think they get right in supposing that is that they're highlighting the centrality of Jesus forming from the mud. John's gospel is intentionally evoking images of humankind's formation from the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. In his depiction of Christ's miracle here, John shows how the same material, the dust of the earth, is being used by the same hand of God, Jesus, to show a picture of the original fashioning of man to display how the original creation took place, as Irenaeus puts it. There's a few textual indicators for this in John's Gospel. 
The theme of day and night has already been prominent, um, particularly throughout uh, this chapter and the chapters leading up to it. Throughout verses 4 and 5, uh, there's similarities to Genesis 1, 3 through 5, where God's separating the light from darkness and calling it day and night. The word uh, translated as Jesus making mud is the same word used for God's creative act in Genesis in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And although it has a wide range of meanings, it's a very different word than the much more specific one usually used whenever talking about fashioning something out of clay or, or making a sculpture or something like that. And then last, at the end of the chapter, the Pharisees explicitly allude to the cosmic scope of what's happening. Literally saying that in all the ages of the history, they had never heard of a man being born, having his eyes, being born blind, having his eyes open. I read an absolutely fascinating article about this very topic a few months back. And here's what the author concludes after looking at the way several ancient cultures talked about the use of mud and spit in creation stories. Even if John has culled this detail from his sources, it is evident that he is also importing into it his own theological nuances as he depicts this healing. It is only by being formed from the earth and being given the breath of life that humanity lives in Genesis 1 and 2. And in John 9, it is that same hand, the same word, using that same earth, calling out to the blind man to go wash. Irenaeus then raises the interesting point that it makes no sense for the body to be made of one thing and the eyes of another. And so if Christ's healing of the man born blind returned his eyes very substance to them, and the fact that the body doesn't reject them is evidence that their underlying substance is the same. It was formed by the very same stuff, the hand of the creator and his gift of life. Now I should add that particular point might sound weird to us or foreign, uh, but it was important for Irenaeus because if you'll remember, I was talking about how he used to uh, write against these early heretics and they would often argue that man was created from what Irenaeus says, a flowing and confused material. Uh, basically the Gnostics were like crazy. That's the short version. They had some wild stuff that was out there. And so he is intentionally trying to make a link between the God of the Old Testament creating and human beings being formed from that very same substance that Jesus was healing with. This is important because it, it reminds us that the material world is not inherently despised by God. Instead, God gets involved in the material world. He actually becomes a human being, redeems the human being, and he does so by wielding the very substance out of which he formed the human being. What seems like a small detail on the surface, John's inclusion that Jesus used mud from the ground, actually reveals something bigger, that there is one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible, and that there is one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, who performs all that the Father has sent him to do. The healing is not merely done to make a blind man's life easier or to dunk on the religious elites. It is instead performed so that we would no longer seek another hand by which man was fashioned. That we wouldn't look after for another father, knowing that this hand, the one seen in Christ, is the one that formed us in the beginning, forms us in the womb, and in the last time seeks us out 
taking upon his shoulders the lost sheep, restoring them to the fold of life with joy, as Irenaeus writes. The rest of chapter 9 consists mostly of the Pharisees continuing their challenge of Jesus' identity, failing to believe that he actually healed the man. We don't have time to walk through the whole chapter as slowly as we have, so I'm just going to jump ahead to the conclusion. Um, I'm sure that you guys would be grateful if I didn't spend this much time on every little section of chapter 9. So after bickering back and forth with the religious authorities, the formerly blind man is thrown out of the synagogue. His relationship with his parents is fractured. This would have had long-standing social and economic effects on his life. Um, arguably, being a religious outcast in this society would have been a worse social fate than being blind, perhaps. It was a shameful and disgraced lifestyle. Then, beginning in verse 35, we read, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Having called Jesus a prophet when pressed by the Pharisees, the formerly blind man finally confesses what his vision has enabled him to see. That this man is the son of man, the promised Messiah who would come to save Israel. The opening of the blind man's eyes in John is shown not merely to be physical, but spiritual. Verse 38 actually uses one of the most intense words for worship that we could use. It's to literally or figuratively prostrate oneself before an authority out of reverence. This man, in his healing, received something greater than the sight he was given. He was given new spiritual eyes. But the story doesn't end here. I think it's interesting. John could have just recorded the miracle and then moved on to the next scene. But instead, he records Jesus' words as he emphasizes the Pharisees' impenitence, using the man's vision as a foil for them. He makes sure all the onlookers have learned the right lessons, showing that he, as true light, is the revealer of the God who makes the blind see and the seeing blind. And even further, he calls them out on it. Now that you say we see, your sin remains. To ignore Christ's identity as the Son of Man and to believe you are sufficient to save yourself is to continue in blindness like the Pharisees. The Pharisees understood themselves as picture-perfect disciples of Moses, as they called themselves earlier in the chapter. Undeserving of judgment and blinded to their own sin, unable to see their true spiritual states. The Pharisees thought they were seers, but they weren't. They were actually blind, refusing to acknowledge Jesus' true identity and their insufficiency to save themselves. But Christ shows us that our innate blindness ought not to be a roadblock to believing the gospel, as it was for the Pharisees. It should actually enable it. It's the recognition of blindness, of spiritual blindness, that marks the beginning of true Christian faith not the healing of the blindness. 
The Apostle Paul says something similar, but in a different way. Whenever he says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Ephesians 2 tells us the plan of salvation was ordered in such a way that no man might boast unless they were boasting in the work of Christ. Compare what we've just seen to uh, 1 John 1, beginning in verse 5, that this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. First John tells us that those of us who are like the Pharisees, seeing ourselves as without sin, make Jesus a liar. While the image of a man born blind from birth might be one of the feeblest and weakest images of the ancient world, it turns out that human frailty is actually the fulcrum of the gospel. Both in recognizing our own sinfulness, our own failures as human beings, and also confessing that Christ's suffering to the point of death forgives us of those failures. One commentator says about this passage that, From the prologue onward, John's gospel has depicted the inability of the darkness to recognize the light. But the scandal is not simply that the darkness cannot see the light, but also that it cannot see itself for what it is. The foundational irony of the gospel is not that God became human, but that humanity thought that they had become godly. Do not be unrepentant like the Pharisees. Recognize and embrace your humanity. As human beings, we are nothing but clay formed from the earth by the hands of God and vivified by the Spirit through the Son's incarnation, living eternally in the image and likeness of our Creator who made us. And it's only once we understand ourselves in these terms, in this light, that we can actually fulfill our vacation of being, our vocation, excuse me, not a vacation. Vacation sounds great right now. Um, it's only once we understand ourselves in this light as clay vivified by the Spirit that we can fulfill our vocation of being created in the image and likeness of our triune God. This is to say that it's not a shameful thing to confess your insufficiency. It's actually an eternally costly thing if you don't do so. So, clear as mud. I'm sorry, I had too many mud spit puns. I want us to close this evening by reflecting on what this all means for us. Irenaeus, in his demonstration of the apostolic preaching, says that while the earth was still virgin because it had not rained on the earth, God took mud from the earth and fashioned man. And then Christ, by being born of a virgin, recapitulated or reflected this man by receiving the same arrangement of embodiment as Literally the same economy of flesh. And as a result, just as it was through a disobedient virgin that man fell and met death, so it was by means of an obedient virgin that man was revivified. And in doing this, the Lord sought out his sheep. What's ironic or coincidental or providential even 
about the words that I just read from Irenaeus is that John's gospel doesn't actually break at the end of chapter 9. In the earliest manuscripts, Jesus' famous discourse about the good shepherd who seeks his sheep is part of the story of the blind man's healing. It isn't until we get to verse 22 that John chooses to change the scenery. For the blind man, just as forcefully as he was removed from the synagogue, he's told that he is welcomed into the flock of the good shepherd. If you aren't in Christ, this can be your story too. Christ tells us right there in John 10 that there are other sheep that he has yet to bring into the flock. Put your trust not in hired hands or in the wolves that will come to snatch and scatter the flock, but instead trust in Christ who unites us into one flock and lays down his life for it. The Lord has come for those who see their need of a savior, not those who think they can see everything apart from it. For those of you who are in Christ, rest in the promise that the maker of the world became one of us, laid down his life so he could take it back up again, and is working to make all things new. You are part of this plan of God. His divine economy is being unfolded before your eyes, if only you will have the clarity of vision to see it. Keep the faith, stay close to the flock. Your shepherd returns soon, and you will know his voice when you see it, and you will see his face without a veil. Uh, pray with me. I think we'll close out service. God, uh, thank you that you have used uh, throughout the centuries your faithful sheep to pass down this gospel. Uh, I pray that as we think about uh, not just what it means for Jesus to have walked on the earth, to die, to die a death that covers our sins, but for him to be the very hand with which you created the world. I pray that as we reflect on that, that it would change the way we think about our day-to-day life. That we would allow that to define what it means for us to live our lives as humans. I pray that any in here who do not recognize their smallness before you, that you would humble them, that you would... uh help solve their spiritual blindness. And I pray for those of us who are in Christ in the room, that you would give us eyes to uh, look at the world this way, to read scripture, always reminding that you are one God working in many times and many different ways, but in these last days, speaking through your son. It is in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please stand and sing the closest.
So like one, like I love just a little, it's not a, it's not a big deal, but the fact that Cody randomly chose a passage that happens to be happening in the story of the Bible during the feasts, in fact, in the midst of the feasts that we are talking about right now, right? Like we took a break between, between, um, uh, trumpets and Yom Kippur and between booths, which are all there together. And then like, there's a very good likelihood that this story would have happened in between those two times, you know, whatever. And so you're just sort of like, that's cool. We didn't know that. We didn't know. I think those things are cool. Like it's like God is, is saying, hey, there's a big theme here and I'm working these things together. Um, I think probably our talk about the feasts over the last few weeks um, leads perfectly into to kind of the themes that he's talking about in the sense that we are seeing typological pictures of God's, uh, the, the way he has ordered his, his world and, and the plans that he has for his people and the salvation that he has brought. He's painting pictures of these things. And we see those pictures symbolically in the feasts. And then we recognize that sometimes we come to those in, in actual events, right? The story actually happens. It's not a parable, right? This is something, this is a historic event that happened. And yet Jesus is ordaining these events to paint a picture of a larger picture of the way life and creation and salvation and everything else um, work. Angie, you and I 
we went through that book, right? That's the one that we went through and you were part of that group. Yeah. Um, so we read, we went through this, the Irenaeus book that he was talking about um, back, I don't know, a year or two ago or something like that. And again, one of the things that encouraged me was interesting as we read it is that particular text. I've never attempted the other one, the uh, against heresies one, but that one uh, just seems so straightforward, contemporary, uh, in general, with a couple of interesting little exceptions, every once in a while, Irenaeus throws a curveball in there and you're like, well, that's a weird thing to say. But other than that, normally, like, this is a man that lived 1800 years ago and he reads the Bible in a very similar way that we read the Bible. Like, you just read it and you go, yeah, that's, that's because this is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, right? It's not something that we're making up as we go along, uh, that Jesus has, has delivered this to us, and we continue to live in light of it um, throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, until his coming. So that's cool. Um, thank you, dude. Good job. Um, appreciate it. Um, hope you have a great week. Again, join us next week, 345 down the patio. So if you've never been down there, like when you park, you'll kind of walk down that little lane that goes down. That's the easiest way to get there. And then just walk up there and then we'll have the door unlocked as we come back in. If you want to come up the stairs or whatever, come down there. We're just going to have some desserts, coffee, things like that. Just hang out for about 45 minutes to an hour before service. We'll come up and close out our, our series on um, the Old Testament uh, festivals. And, and then week after that, we'll be back in Luke leading into kind of our Thanksgiving and Advent season. And so working into that. But hope you have a great week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.